It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 93, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. John Middleton farms with his wife, Leija, at Fazenda Boatera in Spring Green, Wisconsin. After years of working on other farms and starting on an incubator program in Minnesota, John and Leija started a vegetable farm on the farmland at Frank Lloyd Wright's Taliesin Estate in Spring Green. Three years into their tenure at Taliesin, they're growing a little under 10 acres of vegetables and grossing about $10,000 per acre. John shares some of the details about getting started at Taliesin, where an architectural apprenticeship program was already in place when he and Leija started the vegetable farm, an arrangement that has been rewarding but has also come with some challenges. We discuss Fazenda Boatera's strategy for investing in equipment and infrastructure, how they've grown their operation rapidly and what the future is expected to bring, and how they're dealing with a very full marketplace for local vegetables in southern Wisconsin. We also dig into John's weed control tools and techniques for both wide rows and solid seeded beds, their year-on, year-off cover crop rotation, and the challenges of becoming a boss after many years of working on other people's farms. Just a heads up here, there's a bit of language in this episode, not enough to call it explicit, and I didn't really think it was worth beeping out, but it's more than usual, so I thought I should mention it. Enjoy the show. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by BCS America. BCS two wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. John Middleton, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. John, I'd like to start our conversation today by having you tell us about Fazenda Boatero, how you guys got started, how much you're farming now, where you're located, where you've been located, kind of all of those details to help us get a context as we go forward today. Yeah, well, uh, I met Leija, my wife, back in New York when uh, uh, I was an apprentice and she was also an apprentice at a neighboring farm. Um, and yeah, we ended up getting married there, actually kind of its own little saga, but we got a good opportunity out in Minnesota uh, when we went out to Gardens of Eden, I believe, in 2010. Uh, I could do some management there. She could work. But one of the things we wanted to be able to do was get our own business started. Um, and they did happen to have an incubator program, so it allowed us uh, a really pretty unique opportunity, actually, um, start our business while farming there, which was really beautiful. So we developed our business there for uh, three seasons before moving the farm uh, down to Wisconsin, uh, Spring Green, Wisconsin, in 2013 into 2014. Um, we kind of take on a new project here at Taliesin. So Taliesin is something that generally has a meaning here in southern Wisconsin, but for everybody else that's listening, can you can you kind of give us where you guys are located and what the setting's like and what Taliesin actually is? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's kind of a, a big question to unwrap with uh, the broader context of this, this whole phenomenal community and this interesting little spot of the earth we seem to land on. But um, yeah, in short, Taliesin was uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, who's you know, a pretty well-known architect around the country and the world. And um, he had a farm here. His family was from this valley. Um, and this is where his home was. And he actually ran a farm here with his apprentices. Uh, kind of the motto here is always learning by doing, which is kind of an appealing thought, I, I think. Um, and so they were 
up to 100 apprentices at various points learning the craft of drafting and building. What was kind of unique was he had really, whether intentionally or not, created an, an intentional community where they were also farming the land. So everyone who was here learning and working was also farming. And as that legacy sort of has peeled away into the past a bit as, you know, obviously he died in 1959, so it's been a while, there was a lot of talk principally from Gary Zimmer, who actually transitioned this ground to organic in about 2002, I believe, um, really kind of reinvigorating that the legacy of the agricultural land use here, uh, a landscape uh, stewardship model, uh, bringing back vegetable production, and really getting back to the roots of, of teaching that. So it was kind of an interesting offer where he was willing to help us relocate and get started down here. Uh, with the intention of really kind of creating a, a small, medium-scale, uh, you know, vegetable and food school, also tying in with the, the culinary history here. Um, and some pretty cool things that we're doing on that front again now. And so just to, to set a little background then, Gardens Vegans was a was a large operation south of the Twin Cities up in Minnesota. Um, I yep. think about 60 acres of vegetables. We actually had a, have an interview on our archives with Linda Halley, who was the manager there after Martin and Atina Diffley. And they had an incubator program, which Linda and I talked about at length during our interview. Yep. Uh, then... Um, so you moved down now. Gary Zimmer is is also a, a big player here in the Midwest. He was the founder of Midwestern Bioag, and and also has the uh, Otter Creek Farms. Otter Creek or also has Otter Creek Organic Farm, which is a a, a cash grain and livestock operation, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. and yep. so dairy too, and dairy as well. Yep. Okay, and so when you when you guys came down here. What was the arrangement? Was he hiring you to come in and, and do this work of developing this program? Or do you guys still have your own business? Um, yeah, we do operate independently. Yeah, it was a, a bit of a tough decision actually leaving uh, Minnesota. Uh, originally with Linda, who uh, Rage and I both adore, actually. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think a big part of it was it would afford us an opportunity to continue running our own business with somewhat of the goal, ditching the day job. Um, kind of the conversation we had initially when we were starting was, you know, about how difficult it is to get started in farming. Uh, obviously, all the land access issues, the amount of capital investment. Um, how do you actually build a business when you have to work off farm as much as you can be on the farm? So we were sort of bouncing the idea around with what if you can do a lot of your investment up front with sort of a scale modeling goal and be able to just go full steam ahead into it. Yeah, so part of it was coming to let's see, get some vegetable operations started and, and Gary was able to, you know, help us uh, secure financing, give us a little bit of money to get started uh, as far as his personal income. He is officially the, his vegetable consultant. Um, and I think one of the things that was really appealing in that broader question about coming to Palliacin was, uh, you know, land access, land tenure. Uh, you know, as much as we need need the cash, I and Legia are, are huge fans of bartering. And it was a really interesting opportunity to actually get access to land where we could farm. And rather than actually paying cash, what we're doing is 
donating produce back to the architectural school. They do a master's program in architecture that still does operate on this site. So it's kind of an interesting thing to actually think about you know, growing the food for, you know, a college of sorts. Um, but basically, in exchange for that, uh, some of the, the, the counting time, if I'm sitting in on meetings, you know, at Taliesin with, you know, talking about what's happening with the landscape, coordinating with uh, our the natural landscape coordinator here who's doing a lot of wildlife restoration, uh, the development of, you know, Taliesin Farms programming, which are some things that we're going to be launching next year. Um, in addition to the farm dinner series, we actually launched this season on the, on the farm, which is really phenomenal. But basically just kind of contributing to those things, uh, bringing the food back uh, to the kitchens there um, and sort of valuing that. Uh, you know, we do, do do an accounting of it, but basically that is what pays for our land rent and housing, um, which to me I think is really phenomenal. You know, even even when things get lean, like this year was a difficult year, you know, we know that we're secure in our land access and our housing, and that, that's a pretty, pretty amazing thing um, that we would think would be interesting to think about how to replicate that sort of model um, for other young farmers, where there may be some landowner that would like to be able to invest or see farming happen on their land and considering how to, you know, actually be able to generate a living wage and invest in a business early on. Um, and kind of take a lot of the, those, those really painful growing pain years uh, and sort of compress them or, or mitigate them to some extent. Well, I think taking that risk away as much as possible, especially when you're starting out, is so important. And 2016 here in the upper Midwest was real proof of that with as tremendously wet as it's been this late summer and, and fall has been devastating to a lot of growers. So again, knowing that you've got that, at least that one piece of security, you got a roof over your head and you got land to farm on again next year. No, we're pretty lucky. So how many acres of vegetables are you guys actually growing there at Fazenda Boatera? Yeah, we have, I think under our, our management, uh, Right now, is a little over 20 acres, um, and this year we came in just a little under 10. Our production plan would have probably had us a little bit uh, over 10, but you know, as you alluded to, some of that uh, <laughs> moisture in in late summer, early fall, uh, kind of reduced that number a little bit as we couldn't get some seedings in and, and cancel a few transplantings and things, but. Uh, yeah, about 10 acres, a little under 10 acres of vegetables this year, up from about two and a quarter in 2014, which was our first year. And we kind of just landed here blind and didn't really know which way was up. So some pretty rapid growth for you guys. Yeah, I mean, I think that was is a little bit of the, the idea we had, um, really trying to work up to a little bit, you know, mid-size uh, production scale, uh, you know. I'd like to be doing, you know, between 30 and 40 acres reasonably quickly. Um, you know, we continue to have a lot of conversations internally, uh, Lija and I, about, about scale and our crop mix and which ways we want it to go. But we would, we kind of would like to be able to have, you know, 40 acres or so. So we sort of began tooling up for that as we develop markets. Uh, and that it has its own, some of its own, own complications as all of a sudden we do get into being more uh, managers and, uh, <laughs> having employees and things like that. So, yeah, we're learning. 
And you talk about developing markets. Spring Green is an hour west and a little bit north of Madison, Wisconsin, which is a a place where there's a ton of market farmers already. How's that market development going? It is a very it's it's, it's pretty saturated as far as as CSA farms, and there, there are a lot of market growers at the farmers market. Um, so we have seen, you know, compared to you know how we were doing in the Twin Cities when we were at Gardens of Eden and getting started. Um, Certainly, I think the the CSA and farmers markets were uh, a better area to, to to look for a lot of growth for revenue. Um, you know, we're looking at our CSA model and, and really going to be doing quite a bit of tinkering with it, and really being strategic about what kind of markets we go to, and really linking the two with our CSA and the farmers markets is more of a, a singular unit, and getting away from the boxes and things within the Madison market. Um, but wholesale has been, uh, you know, really pretty good to grow into. We've been working uh, quite a bit with uh, our co-ops and Willie Street in Madison, also Viroqua, out in Viroqua, of course, um, and some other distributors. And we see a lot of growth potential there, which also ties in with thinking about scaling up certain crops that we might be able to make more money at. You know, with, with less labor, we can really get efficient on um, so I, do, I think a lot of our growth is going to be more on the wholesale, developing more more restaurant uh, relationships. Uh, we really like working with a few uh, chefs around here, particularly in Spring Green, have some uh, really good support here as well. Um, so that's, I think that's kind of where I see more of our marketing effort going. So, so with that mix of markets, CSA, farmer's market, wholesale, working with some distributors, how much are you guys grossing on your 10 acres of vegetables? Well, this year is going to be a little bit lower. We're, we we shoot for the most part, and I think we do a lot of lower lower value wholesale crops. It's interesting. Total is usually looking for around twelve thousand an acre uh, gross. Um, this year we're gonna we won't hit that target, uh, principally because of our our cauliflower, which you know it's a pretty pretty big hit this year. Um, so we'll, we'll come out a little bit lower. We're hoping by the end of the season that we can we can get up to about 10,000. So growing some lower value crops for wholesale, I mean, it's interesting to me because the shows that get a lot of attention on the Farmer to Farmer podcast tend to be the ones that are about folks grossing massive amounts of dollars on very few acres. And you're talking about kind of running a different model that way. Why have you chosen to go in that direction? Uh, that's a good question. We we wonder that a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think a lot of it is, um, you know, looking back, I think even a, lo- a little bit of what we learned from a variety of farms we've worked at. Um, you know, I guess my formative education being uh, probably back at Roxbury, you know, sort of a larger, uh, you know, CSA farm. So I think when I started out, I was kind of the hog and the, you know, everything's going to be CSA. And I was pretty, pretty staunch about that. Um, versus going out to, you know, Gardens of Egan, where the Dickleys has established a much different model, which seemed a bit perplexing to me, but I think kind of grew on me about, you know, getting rid of certain crops, um, you know, really specializing in, you know, 9, 10, 13 crops that they can do on a larger scale, really excel at, um, and, and, and run, and run a pretty lean operation. And then sort of 
I guess, the juxtaposition of, of those two models. And then also, you know, it, while starting there being really small and really going for more high value per acre um, and seeing that becoming, you know, a much more prevalent movement, you know, within, within the uh, farming community. And I think we were just, we've been kind of tinkering with ideas of, of how, uh, how to blend, what that blend, what that mix looks like and at what scale we want to produce, produce that. I think some of it is, is getting into that labor issue, thinking about, you know, what we can do with say 40 acres where most of that is going to be, you know, wholesale crops that we can really harvest pretty quickly, mechanize as much as possible versus the really, really labor intensive crops that you'd have, you know, your typical market farmers, CSA, all of the bunching things, uh, you know, baby greens and, really kind of looking at looking not so much at what the gross is, but really how much we're spending to produce that crop. And I think that's sort of, you know, the conversations we're having about that model and what that looks like. And, and I think it's still evolving a little bit. So with 10 acres of relatively extensive crops, how many employees do you and Legia have besides yourselves working on the farm? Um, this past season, we had uh, two apprentices that worked full-time on the farm and uh, a friend of ours from from town uh that worked a few days a week with us and how has that been for you going from your position at roxbury farm your you know kind of a management position there at gardens of egan and then but still working for linda and working with a group of other people there to really Mm -hmm. being the farm manager the farm boss, uh, obviously with Legia, but really being in charge of things at Fazenda Boatera. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, there's definitely a learning curve, um, particularly with uh, you know thinking about our apprentices because this is something that we do really care about and trying to teach and balancing you know your expectations of them as an employee and a farm worker and having the time to actually teach them. Um, so that they're they're preparing for a future potentially in agriculture versus just having cheap labor. So I think there's a little bit of tension there is where, um, you know, I, I, I always try to tell my apprentices, like, <laughs> you know, you, you, you're apprentices on the farm and I'm still very much an apprentice mentor. Like, it's a little, there's going to be some fits and starts here and, and, you know, let's try to keep, you know, communication open so we can keep each other in check here. Because while I'm trying to teach you, I'm also really learning a lot from you as well. Um, so that's that's a pretty interesting dynamic with kind of going with an apprenticeship model early on. Um, and I think there are a lot of uh, a little bit of growing pains there that I think most farmers or any small business person really uh, can identify with when it's your craft and you've really sort of mastered certain things. Um, you know, Lija and I, we can get most everything done without talking. You know, we have a, a natural rhythm. Um, you know, she's a real boss. I mean, everything that's happening as far as, uh, uh, you know, figuring out from availabilities to uh, being in charge of the harvest and the, the post-harvest. I mean, that's really all Lija. Um, and she's got pretty phenomenal at it. It's kind of mind-blowing, really. I can't even begin to keep up with her anymore but uh it's been difficult for her also where i think that we 
we contain so much of it in our heads and what doesn't have to actually be, be spelled out. Also, it's like, wow, you really do have to say things three, four, five, six times. Like, it might take 10 times for something to sink in. And, and taking it for granted that, that with our experience, what seems obvious is not obvious to other people. You know, and having, having lots of conversations with many of our friends in this community that are also, you know, running small businesses and they're running into a lot of the same issues. You know, it's definitely not just a farming thing, but I think any entrepreneurial venture, um, yeah, things change a great deal when all of a sudden you're responsible for, you know, managing an employee, teaching them the skills, um, and also, you know, holding their feet to the fire to, to maintain quality. Um, which is really important to us because what, what Leija likes to let out of the shed is uh, uh, a very clean product. Um, some people say we're a little too meti- meticulous sometimes. Um, <laughs> I don't think you can be meticulous enough, I guess. But I think I think as we as we continue to have employees and, and now in the off season, uh, being able to really talk about what we think we did well, uh, you know, the, the uh, areas that we need to improve a great deal are, are pretty obvious. I think. Yeah, just trying to move forward and keep improving. You know, eventually, obviously, as we, we scale up, we're going to need people that we can trust as managers that we're going to have to really be able to uh, rely on even more and more. So, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. <laughs> when you talk about things that you need to improve that you're that you and Leach are discussing as winter kind of gets underway, although you really wouldn't know it by the weather that winter winter was getting underway here in the Midwest right now, <laughs> but what kinds of things specifically are you looking at improving relative to your employee situation? Um, I mean, I think some of the basic things are just simply never taking anything for granted at, uh, or never assuming that things are obvious <laughs> and just really kind of over communicating. Um, you know, not necessarily with micromanaging, but realizing that you really do have to explain everything in detail. Um, and then principally also main, keeping, you know, following up um, with that and making sure that if when things aren't right, like you're just not letting it slide or, um, you know, if you don't, if you see something going on that you know that you don't like, you know, just making sure that you're communicating that, you know, even though, you know, no one likes to be in that position. You don't want to be the obnoxious boss always in someone's face, but it's also like, well, when we do it right, we don't have to talk about it anymore. Which I think is one of the biggest challenges with communicating with people is we don't tend to talk about what's going right. And mm-hmm. therefore, with, and, and then when you do talk about what's going wrong, you come off as an asshole and unappreciative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and I think that's, that's always a, a big concern. I think um, Elise is pretty, pretty reserved. Um, she kind of is the more the type that prefers to seize quietly in her head. <laughs> Whereas I'm, I'm you know, I don't like making waves in general. I think it's, uh, yeah, that's definitely something that we have to work on. And I think, you know, I think we, we did a lot better this year than we did say last year. And we had our first apprentice. Uh, we we're lucky. She was actually really kind of a quick learner. So we didn't really have to communicate as much. Sometimes you find that, you know, when you have to communicate more then yeah, it becomes a bigger issue, but, uh, you know, and you don't, I guess you don't want to be a jerk, but you know, it's also, they have to realize that, yeah, this is our livelihood. Like we can't afford to screw around. This is, you know, this determines whether we make it through the winter. This is not a, you know, this isn't just, just fun for us. It, it is our, our life. And yeah. <laughs> Working to kind of 
improve your corrections and and how you're dealing with that. Are there other things that you're going to be changing about how you manage your employees? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that has been somewhat complicated, actually, is we also kind of getting back to some of the other the comments about the Taliesin. What's been kind of interesting here is they've been pretty supportive about the apprenticeship model as well. Um, but right now, sort of like how just it's it's real nuts and bolts infrastructure type stuff is that our apprentices are housed with uh, the architectural students and they have an interesting term. Um, they call it the migration where they basically show up in May and then they're here through October and then they actually have another campus in Arizona that then they're at uh, the rest of the year. So the past two years, sort of the arrival of the apprentices has uh, corresponded with their return to uh, Wisconsin in May, which is really a pretty bad time to get started with an apprentice. Um, so we're going to be talking a lot with them about arranging housing earlier, um, or actually maybe using a house that's across the road that, uh, another farm that Gary Zimmer owns actually, but really trying to get our apprentices here at the start of the season back in March when we're just kind of waking the farm up, pulling things out. Um, and we have a lot more time with them when things, there's not so much pressure, um, to really start figuring out what kind of flow we have, identifying the problem areas, communicating that a lot earlier, um, and having just a lot more time to really kind of lay out what the farm is all about, what farming is about, you know, just kind of um, actually being able to get to know each other a little bit better versus, you know, showing up in May when it's like, May the first crazy month, like we're already, we're in Game Busters transplanting, the greenhouse is going crazy, busting at the seams. Now we're starting to harvest, like, and so I think that's kind of, you know, throwing them right into the fire <laughs> can be a little bit rough. So I think that's just a real uh, practical nuts and bolts thing, uh, thing that we're going to do. Um, and I think that'll be, be really a lot better for next year. Now you're at a 10 acre scale. Now you're, you said you're heading towards 40 that's got to create some interesting challenges when it comes to investing in equipment and machinery and infrastructure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, machinery wise, I think we're, we're pretty cooled up. Um, yeah, it's definitely a, a land based issue for one thing, making sure that we actually, uh, have that amount of land. And I, and I'm a pretty big proponent, especially with veggies because, you know, we're particularly vicious to the soil, um, no matter how much we love on it, really having the half in half out kind of rotation. So if I'm doing 40 acres, uh, well, I'm going to need 80. And then actually the way I have field set up with harvest lanes and headlands, I lose 20%. So I'm actually going to need a hundred acres, um, to do 40 acres. And then you look at those numbers and it starts looking a little crazy. Um, so we may not actually get to that scale, you know, you know, the next three to five years. I and mean, I think we might, we're going to, we're going to probably grow a little more slowly up towards 20 and then hoping to have about, you know, 50 acres that we can work, work on. Um, so that's, that's definitely, you know, something that we have to be thinking about. Definitely the, the infrastructure I think is, is the key there. I mean, our first season here, you know, our, our path shed was, you know, Occasionally, if it was really sunny, the market tent in the driveway kind of thing. Um, you know, last year we upgraded to a carport. 
know, the gravel floor, that was pretty fancy. Um, and then this year we actually did have a, a small pack set up and running, um, which made a big difference, but we still, you know, as we're growing, getting our cooling figured out, we're actually still using a little cooler that's at our house, which is kind of the base of operations of the greenhouses, but the pack set is actually up the road. Um, so we're trucking everything back and forth between the cooler and the pack shed, you know, a mile up and down the road. Um, so those, those kind of efficiencies are, have cost us big time. Um, and moving into next year, actually, we have the cooler up, we'll have it operating next year. Um, so then having the pack shed facility be, you know, one cohesive unit, uh, where we can move pallets in and out of, uh, will certainly make a big difference. I mean, I think last year, I can't even remember what I calculated for Legia. I think we, we was like our, you know, dicking around coefficient, but you know, it was a pretty significant <laughs> number of uh, number of hours we lost just, you know, moving everything one case at a time and then stepping up into the cooler. And um, so even this year, just having a good pack shed facility saved us a lot. And once we're actually able to get directly into our cooler um, next year, I mean, it's it's literally, you know weeks of labor i i think um that you can earn back uh so i'm curious when you said you calculated the dicking around coefficient what did you what did you calculate that as because i think sometimes sometimes getting at the payback on infrastructure developments is particularly difficult you know it's it I mean, you can do something pretty easily when you go oh we want we're going to invest in a you know a, a root digger and it's going to make it so that we don't have to fork the carrots how much time do we spend forking the carrots how much time are we going to spend with the root digger you can get pretty quick how much time you're going to save that way and uh-huh. and turn that into dollars and go oh yeah we're going to buy a root digger no sweat but yep. when it comes to to dealing with that stuff on an infrastructure level I think it's a little bit fuzzier. I'd be curious what that number was and how you calculated it. Um, or maybe I'm giving you too much credit for rigorous data analysis. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, I don't think it was too rigorous. Um, you know, and then there's, there's sort of the intangibles, like you know, what is the uh, you know the toll on a spine? How do you work that into the uh, the number? But I mean, I think it was you know just how much time, you know, how many miles are we running up and down the road? How much time does that take? How much fuel do we use? Um, and then obviously our, our cooler as it is, it's just actually an old chicken freezer box that we have a cool box running in, which has been pretty amazing. It's kind of insane how much produce we've turned through that stupid thing. But, uh, you know, it sits up a little higher, so you have to basically lift every case up into it. You can't get the hand, a hand truck in and out. Um, so just the amount of, of time walking and carrying things versus being able to yeah, run your pallet jack or a hand truck with five cases on it and not having to individually handle them. Um, you know, and then of course, when we didn't have pack shed, we didn't have our brush washer, uh, that really speeds up a lot of, of our washing time, things like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the crux of that coefficient was, was in, uh, largely Legia's overall dissatisfaction with, with the way her spine felt, um, as a carport pack said manager and just, yeah, uh, just all of the handling. I can't remember exactly how we, how we came up with our number on that, but 
it's an interesting number to try to come up with. And, and I think particularly on a farm, when you've got infrastructure that sort of works, looking at making infrastructure that actually will work and what that does for you at, from a long-term personal and business sustainability perspective, because you really are reducing your overhead going into the future when you, when you build something that works efficiently and well. Something that Paul Arnold talked a lot about in his interview with the Farmer mm-hmm. Farmer podcast. So, and I think for us, most of that really is, uh, you know, feeling our bodies. I mean, that's always my dad. You know, whenever I talk to him, he's always, "How's wages back?" You know, be careful. You're in your mid thirties. That's when it happens. You know, and I think we're we're cognizant. You know, as we've been doing this over uh, eleven years or so each. Um, you know, you start to have those little little creaks and some cracks and stuff that, you know, they're not that bad, but, you know, we're still young, but realizing like there's, there's things are starting to compound a little bit. So, I mean, I think for us, um, one of the driving impulses is like, we have to protect our bodies. Um, and I don't know exactly how you value that. I mean, I think that's kind of an individual choice. Um, you know, how much you value having knees and a spine at 50. Um, but I think that's, that's really, well, that's, that's the main thing we've started to look at when we're looking at everything from, yeah, our infrastructure to, you know, a truck that we load into to um, even our crop mix. You know, we're looking at, you know, one of our best pepper years this year, and uh, they were beautiful. And I'm kind of going, wow, we could really scale this up. We could make good money on it. But for some reason, that angle of picking peppers, we're both just go, oh, geez, nope. Nope, not if we have to ever pick a pepper, we're not doing these, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's really what we're assigning most of the value to is, is hopefully having a body in the future. Well, yeah, and, and for the scale of farm that you're talking about, no body, no farm. I mean, it's not like you're going to be hiring all of the work done and be able to sit in your wheelchair at your desk. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and we wouldn't want, well, certainly wouldn't want to be in a wheelchair, but like, yeah, we want to be out there, but, uh, you know, we don't want to have to be in our forties working as hard as we did in our mid twenties. Cause that's, 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 uh, that's not sustainable. So talk to me about what kind of equipment you guys are running out in the field for that 10 acres of production. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I say, especially when I showed some off in our first or second year when we're still like around five acres or, or between between two and six acres. Like, yeah, we're, we're probably one of the most overcapitalized farms you'll ever see uh, from an equipment perspective. Um, we may still be slightly over tooled up uh, for even our 10 acres, but I mean, I think that was you know, part of the idea of saying like, no, I don't want to have to keep replacing things every time you know, we get that bump in the next four or five acres. So I think we really did kind of start tooling up with, you know, that 40 acre model, uh, in mind. Um, yeah, so we have a bit more specialization we could do, but I think, uh, and I don't know if you can walk us through each piece of equipment or, uh, I think just in general. So 10 acres heading to 40, how many tractors do you guys have? How big are they? Um, well, we have, uh, four tractors, uh, one we don't actually use, uh, kind of pick it up cheap thinking I might be able to do something with it and I don't like it. So I'm going to cart that off to auction. So I'm not really going to count that one, but, uh, yeah, we basically are running three tractors, uh, this year. We had two last year and we had one our first year. So, 
first one I got was actually more of a, a hundred horse tractor with, you know, creeper and a loader. Uh, those are sort of the main things I was looking for. Uh, and that's been a real workhorse. It's not quite ideal for veggies. It's a little lower and has some fat tires and things, but it's still our principal workhorse for doing, you know, all of our tillage and running the transplanter and the grain drill. Um, and obviously having the bucket for and moving around materials and unloading trucks with the pallets. Um, and then we do have uh, uh, a 274, one of the little bit older case offset tractors um, that we use for basket weeding and running our cedar uh, that we upgraded to this year. And a little old uh, Super C that I actually bought from Gardens of Vegan uh, for doing all of our two-row cultivation. That's basically our, our tractor setup. You mentioned that you're doing the year on year off of vegetables. Um, can you tell me about that that rotation of what kinds of equipment you're using to manage that cover crop rotation and the tillage that's involved with that? Yeah, it gets, it's interesting. It, uh, we do a lot of cover crops. We tend to be pretty aggressive with them. Um, we're still working really towards our half in, half out thing, actually. So we're not even quite there yet, which really simplifies things. Um, but we, you know, it's pretty typical equipment uh, for the bigger bigger tillage. We run a chisel plow. We got the disc, um, field cultivator, grain drill, um, you know, all things we can get at auction. Pretty cheap. Um, you know, so long as you have the horsepower, you can scale it to whatever size tractor you have as well. But we run pretty, pretty aggressive rotations, even within a season we are doing vegetables, whether it's an overwintered crop that we're going to work in for a, a, a spring or summer crop, or you know, even sometimes two two cover crop rotations after a spring cash crop, you know, heading into winter. Um, right. And you get, get into cover crops sometimes, my brain's just running wild. I, I like to dream <laughs> there. Um, That's easy. <laughs> I, know, I know just how that is with cover crops. I mean, there, there's something so appealing about... <laughs> about them and it and i think sometimes you know we get into farming and and we do vegetables but man growing cover crops that feels like real farming you know none of this market gardening stuff i mean this is like you know you're out there with a you got a drill and there's you know there's dirt moving and and you know things come up and it's a carpet of green and it's just I mean, there's nothing more beautiful yeah i feel like it, it tapped right into my brain there a little bit I, i've often joked with leads like i wish i could do do nothing but just grow and work in cover crops. Like, I could have a custom cover crop company. Maybe that would be a, be a fun thing. Um, and then maybe get a little jealous of the boys up in the, the combines with the, the small grains. You know, when you're out there on your 150th bunch of carrots for the morning, there's certainly an appeal for, for some of the tractor work as, as well for cover crops. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that really is personally for me one of my favorite jobs on the farm um particularly in the fall i don't know what it is it's just something that feels particularly gratifying about putting your farm to bed you know it's worked its ass off for you all summer um and now you get to just kind of return a little bit of the love uh you know you get two polyannis there but there's something particularly gratifying about it um and then I think as we've developed and we're, we're coming up with more mixes that we use or even tighter rotations um, and a little bit of no-till uh, things that we're 
we're playing with. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a lot of fun. So when you're getting a cover crop established after you've had a cash crop in, tell me about the process that you go through. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, I think um, it's a little bit backwards, but I found I can really get great results with minimum passes. Uh, you know, if I'd have to, have to go back and kind of maybe talk to my younger self who, you know, used to love to rag on the rotavator more than any other particular instrument that people use on the farm. Um, but I still like to a little bit if they use too much. Um, but basically, yeah, if I have a, you know, a broccoli crop, depending on what my window is to get a cover crop in, um, I can either hit it with the flail mower to chop it down uh, and then come through with the rotavator. And then I can hit it with my chisel plow. And actually, one thing I like with our uh, culture chisel plows actually have straight shanks on it. So it's really more of a ripper. So instead of flipping, so instead of flipping the soil from side to side, you're really just knifing through the soil and not doing a whole lot of, of mixing of layers. Exactly. Um, I try not to, to do that. I just like to open that root zone up and, and, you know, soften up some of the damage you do from driving equipment out all over the fields all summer. Um, yeah, so I can basically with that three passes on most of this ground that we're really blessed to have we can pretty much run the drill right after that and i can do that usually in the same day so i can go uh straight from you know chopping the crop rotivating it in to further chop it incorporate it rip it and drill it um and i can usually do that same day by you know obviously getting back to that scale and the equipment one of the issues i do have sometimes this time of year is having enough ground to work to justify firing up the tractor um you know, there's, there's times I'm doing six, seven, eight operations in a day, you know, so most of my tractor time is just bouncing up and down the road. If, you know, I'm, I'm doing, you know, five minutes with a machine here, running back, swapping it out, grabbing another machine to go out for 10 minutes. Um, so sometimes I'm, I'm banking work a little bit just so I can actually have enough uh, ground to justify going out uh, and doing it, in which case I can often just not even go through with the flail mower, but I will just uh, rotivate it, let that dry down if I have a few days or a week. And then I can usually, you know, then plow and drill um, and do it with just the three passes that way. Yeah. I do think it's one of the challenges with a, with a farm at that, at that 10 acre scale. And especially if you're running any kind of a, any kind of a diverse operation is like you said, it, it can be hard to make the jobs big enough to be efficient with them. You know, with matching that up to the equipment that you need to get across the acres that you've got. So all of that switching around. Um, so then when you're taking the cover crops back out again, so let's say, you know, you've got a broccoli crop, you've planted, um, you know, you've planted a cover crop behind that. Maybe it's something like, uh, uh, well, what what might you plant as an overwintering cover crop? You mentioned that you're working with some different blends. Well, I guess it depends. In the, in the fall, there's also one of my favorites is the old uh, fall smorgasbord, which is when I just take all of my seeds I want to get rid of and throw them in and, you know, see what happens and get the nice 12 crop mix or something. But, uh, yeah, I mean, a, a common one, say, with a, a spring broccoli would be, I would follow that same system uh, as we're talking about. But maybe we say with buckwheat, let that go for six weeks or a few weeks. And then I might actually just work that in and... If that is a long enough window, 
you know, I'm going to say, get that in, yeah, probably July, early July, that buckwheat should be pretty well established. Late July, early August, uh, take it down basically with a the similar, similar system. Uh, usually I would, in that case, slail mow it or hit it with the battling mower, which uh, actually I borrowed from a neighbor, which is pretty generous as a slight aside. Um, and then, you know, disc and drill. Uh, usually I won't chisel it again if I've already chiseled it after I took the broccoli out. Um, and then I might put in, uh, you know, a different summer mix. One I was toying with is a, a summer mix from Albert Lee that was a little heavy on buckwheat. So I kind of mixed up my own blend of uh, Sudan grass, soybean, millet, uh, sun hemp, and a little bit of buckwheat in there. Um, and then I can basically let that go until, you know, it gets frosted out. And then what I did this year with that was chop that stubble down and then just no-till drill uh, uh, Ryan vets into the stubble. And I just checked that and actually that stuff is coming up pretty nice uh, in there right now. So that's kind of one of the, the more more fun things I'm playing with right now. And then when you're going to take that that Ryan vetch back out again and put another crop in behind it, what's your process for doing that? Yeah, I mean, I guess that also partly depends on on the season. Um, some of my earliest ground, I actually will generally leave open so I don't have to deal with the residue uh, in the spring. But then most, you know, I usually have ninety percent plus of our ground in a cover going into the spring. Obviously, a lot of that being yeah, rye or rye and vetch or just vetch um, that's going out in October and in, in November. Uh, and then what stage I take it down in. Obviously, when it's much smaller, it's pretty quick. Um, I may, may rotivate it. I try not, and I'm always really cautious for that early ground when everything's wet, you know, that you can really set yourself up for trouble if you're not doing it right. But generally, I'll, I'll rotivate, and then if I have, maybe disc or run the field cultivator depending on, on how I'm feeling about it. And then I'll be able to just run the bed shaper through and get my planting beds ready. Um, if, um, if it gets a little bit later into the season, depending on what I'm going for, you know, larger batch or, um, you know, sometimes you, you let that rye get a little bit more straw, get some of that lignin in there, which obviously takes a bit longer to break down. Uh, then I certainly get into having to, to chop it, usually letting it dry down a little bit. Um, and then doing a little bit more aggressive tillage with, with the disc usually to get it broken down and incorporated and, and ready for a cash crop. And then when you're growing that cash crop, are you using a raised bed system or are you pretty much just flat? Yeah, we use a, we do use a raised bed system. Um, we're, we're tinkering with that a little bit. We definitely work. It's working really well for, all of our direct seed crops, it could be like, yeah, all of our, a bunching stuff and, uh, greens, carrots, you know, that, that sort of thing. So we can straddle that pretty well. The, the smaller tractors, we've been having a little bit less success with that in our, our two row stuff, you know, partly we're on a, a 36 inch bed. Um, that's more where our main tractor isn't quite as ideal. We run into some issues with, with cultivating where the wider rear tires are actually cutting into the bed. So then our plants are a little too close to the edge of the bed because we cut it down. Um, 
maybe in the future when they when we have our uh, a veggie tractor that'll mitigate that problem. So we have been uh, actually cutting those beds down a lot closer to flat uh, to mitigate some of the issues that we've had in cultivating our two-row crops. John, I think this would be a good spot for us to take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then when we come back, I'd like to talk with you about uh, how you're doing your weed control at Fazenda Boatera. All right. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort B and Fort Light potting mixes for organic growers since 1992. Founder and owner Carl Hammer got started as an organic vegetable grower, where he learned that quality transplants really mattered and that quality transplants come from quality potting soils. Makes sense. Just like the donkey on their logo, Vermont Compost Company's potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost's fall pre-buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price and the best shipping options. With their full truckloads and shared truckloads program, they organize shipping to other regions in ways that sometimes gets prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Plus, you pay a lower price for the potting soil. To get a quote from Vermont Compost, go to the ordering page on their website, submit the request to quote form. This form also adds you to their mailing list so you stay in the loop on the program. And remember, the donkeys that I mentioned earlier are the real thing. And you get a little bit of donkey manure in every patch of Vermont Compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com Bandwidth for the show is provided by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time when I was using those thinking of how much easier it would be with a BCS. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments. All right, and we're back with John Middleton from Fazenda Boatera in Spring Green, Wisconsin. John, I said we were going to talk about weed control because, you know, your name actually came up as as being a potential guest when I reached out to Claire Strader at the Fair Share and looking for people who were doing a, a good job with weed control. And she said you. And, and I know when you ask somebody if, uh, if they do a good job of weed control, if they say no, that's usually a good indicator that they're actually doing a good job because they feel that tension between between where they're at and where they'd like to be. But can we talk about how you're actually controlling weeds on your farm? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a few different ways we, we go at it. Um, you know, is particularly as we're just starting to tool up a little bit better for uh, cultivating some of the, the finer multi-row crops, like uh, three or five row, you know, carrots and beets, radishes, that sort of thing, versus what we're doing in you know, sweet corn or broccoli. Um, we tend to be pretty obsessive about the weeds. Um, yeah, certain things, it's it's a lot easier, I think, in in those two-row crops. I mean, that's really, 
you know, I think obviously, you know, I'm going to tell you that the, the foundational things, it's, it's about your, well, not letting things go to seed as much as possible will help <laughs> mitigate the, the future issues. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is, is really using our cover crops to the advantage and good fertility and, you know, our tillage practices as prepared as enough time as possible to maybe have a flush of weeds early in the season or before planting and getting that out. Um, you know, it's pretty easy in the two row things. It's basically, you know, I can go through with our super C and get really pretty fine control through a good chunk of the growth stage of the plants too, depending on whether I decide to move the shovels in out a little bit. Um, and then also our side dresser is a kind of a, actually a peanut cultivator. It's just Lillistons with a, a ground drive. Uh, fertilizer hopper so then I can go through as sort of a final cultivation and hill up a little bit while I side dress. That Lilliston, since since we're on the since we're on the radio, that Lilliston is ground driven tines that rotate and actually move a lot of soil from side to side if you set it up right. Yeah, and I think one of the things I've always liked about it is they're they're so adjustable, whether how you know you can come in or out, twist it, you know, to throw more in or pull away or you can you know, yeah, bend them up towards the row. I mean, there's there's like three different directional adjustments you can make to really kind of move dirt any which way uh, you want, you know, as aggressively as you want. So that's a thing that I really like about them. Um, you know, three-point cultivation is something I think a lot of people are intimidated by. You know, I think, you know, yeah, obviously if you're getting on hillsides, it doesn't get to be pretty difficult or, you know, where there's bends. But I think with, with practice and just kind of learning you know, the machine, it's, it's very doable. Um, yeah, but I, we've, anyway, but the Lillistons, yeah, those, the spider gangs that do a phenomenal job of, of uprooting weeds, burying the things that are in row. And then also, you know, as we're dropping in fertilizer, should we be side dressing at that time? We can drop that and, and kind of bury it. Um, so it's, it's pretty efficient at that. Um, and you can move move pretty quick on a good straight row. That in-row weed control is so important. And I think with those widely spaced crops, really being able to take advantage of their height to heal them up is, is really important. Because that's where you really end up saving the money, especially if you've got an extensive crop like kale or broccoli or cauliflower that you're working with. Yeah, I think that that, that is really important. Um, you know, I think usually we can really minimize any hand weeding. Um you know, when when the timing works out right with that system, we you almost never have to actually hoe a crop. Um, obviously, in farming, the timing is not always perfect, or you don't always hit all those windows. So sometimes we do have to uh, do hoeing, or sometimes we have to maybe go through, say, burning through the field to get the big one. So we'll have one quick hand weeding where basically we'll just grab, you know, every plant that's managed to pop up higher than the canopy of the cash crop and be able to just throw those out of the field. Um, and then you can usually, you know, two to three people, you can burn through an acre and, you know, half an hour just pulling the big ones out and cleaning things up. That makes everything easier. I know partly for me, maybe some of my obsession, particularly with corn, is just being a, uh, you know, an allergy sufferer with uh, farming-induced asthma, where it's just I just don't want that crap in my face when I'm working. Um you know, if I'm if I have pigweed slapping me in the face when I'm picking corn, I'm going to leave the field thicker in hell. 
Um, so I think there's a, to some degree there is a, even a, a health or sustainability component there for me personally. And definitely a quality um, of life issue. We used to have ragweed in the beans, and that would that was one that could just drive me to distraction as, as a fellow allergy sufferer. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, I remember at Roxbury, there other places. You know, we had one year we lost the the, the winter squash to the the pigweed, and it's like I was banned from it. Some reason that stuff would just kill me. Um, to try to keep those out of the field is, is a quality of life thing. Um, but it just makes the harvest a lot easier. You bet, of course, you have better crops, there's less less competition. So um, that just is good. What kind of tools are you using on your more closely spaced crop? As, as I've looked through pictures of your farm, John, I see that you've got some stuff on four rows. You've actually got some stuff seated on, on solid beds. Um, yep. So... On those on those four row crops, which are obviously planted more intensively than a two row crop, what are you doing for weed control there? Because the Lillistons aren't going to fit down that row. <laughs> no, that that wouldn't go so well. I mean, I've been tempted a few times to try it, but that's uh, probably not very good. Yeah, we're still really trying to develop a lot of those systems. Uh, you know, we do have a, a five row basket weeder, which. And I probably got a little too cute trying to bring it in the little fine, so it didn't work quite as well as I would have, have liked this year. So we may kick that back to a three or a four row, um, or really look at a different setup, whether it's something with fingers or some really fine shovels um, for those those five row crops. Um, you know, a lot of that is it's all about bed prep. Uh, I think with 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 those fine crops and. In, within the rotation, you know, something like our plastic culture, which we're developing pretty good weed control there, but that's kind of a perennial weed disaster on most farms, I think. Like, so within our rotation, it's like, no, we are never following <laughs> our direct seed crops. Uh, you're putting them after a plastic culture field. So it's usually something that's either had out of production the year before that we've been able to work on with, with some stale seed bedding and cover cropping or you know, something like a, a, a summer brassica that we have really good weed control on. So we know that we're rolling into the next season with with beds that are as clean as we can we can hope for anyway. Um, and then in the, the spring or, or summer when we're prepping them, really trying to have those beds uh, set up, you know, a good two weeks before we need to seed them. Uh, obviously, sometimes... You know, you end up still prepping them right before you need to plant them because that's just the way farming goes. But ideally, we get a little more time so we can run a few stale seed beds in this very shallow tillage, maybe with the tiller. We're considering maybe a, a, something like a Williams toolbar with a rake that we could do some prep on. Actually, using the, the belly mount basket weeder seems to work really well. In the that 274 with the speaker behind it, so then we'll actually do, uh, you know, a day or so before planting we'll hit it with the basket weeder and then we'll actually run the basket weeder basically directly in front of our seeder um just to, to get that that little final cleaning touch um and then it's really you know we do still do a lot of hand weeding and onion hoeing even with the you know that, that 15 row greens seeder uh, we can usually do a pretty good job just really carefully and quickly kind of scratching out the lines in between um, to get anything that pops up in there. You said 15-row cedar. This is something that you're mounting on the back of the tractor, right? Yes. 
It's a little Sutton Cedar, Sutton Junior. I pulled out of Oregon this past spring. Um, not quite the cedar of my dreams, but it's it's been a big improvement for us. Uh, I think you know compared to uh, you know the the single row Jane Cedar. Not to knock that, but that's a, that's a great cedar. Um, but is we're just trying to scale up and wanting to be able to have more mechanical control, standardizing our rows is something we really wanted to to, to be able to do. And that Sutton Cedar gives you the flexibility to seed solid beds, but also to seed fewer rows. Yeah. So the way that one is set up, I think uh, for us, one of the things we were looking at when we're thinking about uh, upgrading our cedar was frankly, the number of hoppers, um, you know, and we're, we have a really diverse mix. Usually if we're out seeding, we're going to be putting, you know, four to 10 different things in that day. So you're constantly changing seed out. Um, and that, that made us a little weary of, you know, like a, a five row, five hopper thing and having five hoppers to change out. You know, all of a sudden you're doing 40, 45 different seed change intervals in a day and wasting all your time. So the one I really wanted would have been the seed, seed spider, but they want about 16 grand for that thing, which we love. It's, that made that uh, kind of a non-starter, but having a single hopper was really appealing. And then I think sort of the compromise is finding the Sutton, which we have has two hoppers. And you know, it maybe it seems like a little thing, but for us, it makes a big difference when we're changing out so much seed. Um, and then what's kind of cool with that is we just had then a few custom plates so that then we can close down most of the um, rows. So then we can just have uh, five rows running out of the the two hoppers. We even toyed a little bit. There's three rows on one side and two on the other. And like, well, maybe we can do like the turnips three row and the two row on the other side. And then just do them both at the same time. And um, varying degrees of success with that. But um, it's it's been a pretty flexible tool. So, John, earlier in the show when we talked about marketing, we didn't get really specific with much, but you did mention that you're experimenting with some different models with your CSA other than just doing the box plan that you've done in the past. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that we're doing anything new. There's, there's plenty of other people doing similar things, but I think, um, you know, my, my foundation with, with CSA would have been at Roxbury, um, which ran, you know, it's pretty phenomenal farm all in all. Um, they did more of a, a, a slight market style, not the farmer's market style, but basically they were not packing boxes. They would deliver things in bulk. They would, you know, they'd be lined up and, you know, the people would choose from their list and, and pull everything out. And I thought that was really kind of appealing. So when Legia and I, um, started, uh, up in Minnesota with our CSA, we sort of, we took that approach. We didn't like the boxes. We always thought packing boxes just seemed like such a laborious thing to do. So we, we kept bits of, of that, uh, CSA distribution model that we had learned at Roxbury. And then we also sort of refined that a little bit by doing uh, a CSA pickup at our farmer's market stands, which was, seemed to go really well. So basically very similar. They still have a share list here it is, but then they still also have a lot more choice. If it says, you know, two peppers, like, well, do I want two carmines or two bells or one of each? Or, you know, if it's a head lettuce, well, do I want a romaine or a red or a, a green leaf? So, I mean, being able to 
a, a really good way of controlling controlling the share while still being able to give a lot of choice within that share. And we, we had a, a tremendous amount of success with that in uh, in in uh, the South Metro when we were still in the Twin Cities. Um, and then coming down here, I think it was much more entrenched with with the uh, with the box the box drop. It's kind of the way it is. There's just so many sites. It's, it's a little bit saturated, and I think many of the, the, the many CSA customers are just like the boxes. It's convenient. It's easy. But we just have never found it particular uh, particularly rewarding. You know, we, we've done it for the past two years, uh, just kind of playing along, and we just don't really. They don't really like doing it that way. I don't know. Just, that's partly a quality of life thing. It's a, uh, kind of more of a distribution challenge. Whereas at our farmer's market in Madison and then, of course, here in Spring Green, we maintained the, that same model we had at the farmer's market uh, previously before we moved down here. And then also, you know, started going with a, a punch card kind of CSA where people can basically just prepay from the market stand and get what they want. And then you get a rid of uh, a lot of the issues as well. You don't have to worry about a vacation hold or always being at the market. You can miss. You don't have to be there. Um, if you're going to be going out of town, you only want to grab three things. That's great. You have a company coming over the next week. You want, you know, $50 of stuff. You can do that. Um, so that, that amount of choice and freedom is, is uh, really improved our, our retention uh, for those members. Are you using a CSA management system? Uh, yeah, we do. We we, we use the uh, member assembler uh, from Small Farm Central. Uh, we started that. I think we built our website initially, you know, right out of the gate with them, uh, principally for that. Which is, um, yeah, I think it's, it's really good. Uh, it's nice if you could somehow link it a little bit more simply to uh, your QuickBooks or something. So you're still always doing the double entry, but I guess that's maybe not not a, a bad exercise. But as far as that, being able to track your members and communicate with members and, and take payments, I mean, it's really pretty, a, a pretty phenomenal tool. Um, even for a lot of our chefs, we actually have an online little wholesale store. So a smaller order, you know, retail wholesale to, to restaurants and things that they can actually order directly off the website, which also is running through Small Farm Central, which is uh, a, a pretty great service uh, to us. Great. I like that idea of being able to do, especially those smaller orders, to have a way to automate those and really reduce your overhead uh, for dealing with small wholesale accounts. Yeah, and, and I think our our buyers there really like it too. They know twice a week I'm going to shoot them an updated an email, just the updated link, and there it is. And you know, if it's sold out, it just disappears, and the next guy doesn't get to see it there. But um, because they like better than sold out, they seem to get. The feelings hurt a little bit, and they log on, and you know, concerns that it's sold out. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I think it, it. I mean, what's a bookkeeper cost? I mean, how much time do you, you spend organizing that uh, on your own? So I think having that that management software or capability within the website is is really uh, important for us. So you've got wholesale sales running in two different directions. You've got uh, your farms located between Viroqua, which you mentioned as being one major outlet for you guys, and Madison uh-huh. as another major outlet. Uh, can you tell us about how you're doing your wholesale distribution? That definitely represents one of our, our challenges on this farm is, is distribution. Um, you know, it's a, it's a really expensive thing. I remember 
uh, drop in at the Willie Street, uh, I think the, the Middleton one doesn't matter one time, and and Evan, uh, you know, John is one of the receivers saying, "Uh oh, I don't like having to see the farmer do the delivery." And like, oh, well, I can't afford a driver yet, so that's on us. So we did, you know, that is 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 an expense. We are delivering a lot. I mean, basically, we are going into Madison on Tuesdays and Fridays. Um, we do our CSA drops on Tuesday and a Madison run, and then just a, a co-op run on Fridays, and then a, a Viroqua on Wednesday, and then we still have to get ready for Farmer's Market on Saturday. So, I mean, that, it is a lot of driving and bouncing around. Um, luckily, this year, I was able to actually did have didn't really think about that and think about who employees are. I did have a friend who drove at least a day or two a week um, so that I could be back on the farm rather than driving around. So um, to be a little more helpful. Makes a big difference to, to have somebody doing that driving, although it is an interesting dynamic when you turn that over to somebody else. You're really turning over a huge part of your customer service face with those wholesale accounts, even though they maybe say they don't like to see the farmer at the same time. When you're there, you're the one who's maintaining that relationship. Yeah, and I think that that is, you know, it's kind of kind of a yeah tough one. Actually, I love doing deliveries um, because of that. I mean, part of it is like to be driving around. It's kind of nice to relax for a minute, but it is really nice to actually be able to to, to see your customers, uh, wander through the store, kind of see, check out what your stuff looks like on the shelf, and you know, kind of keep tabs on what it looks like you know, a few days after it's been put out from an earlier delivery. Um, so there's, there's a lot of value to being able to do that. But I mean, you know, for the money I can pay someone, um, you know, I can probably only drive a van so much better than just about anyone else off the street. But, you know, my ability to be here farming, a little harder to replace. I mean, <laughs> so that's been good to be able to relieve some of that. So, John, when we were talking before we started recording, you mentioned some work that you're doing with other farmers on a certified vegetable apprenticeship program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, it's something that, that has really excited me. I was I was really uh, happy to be be part of that conversation this past winter, which was um, coming down. I think working with. Uh, you know, the extension and the department of workforce development and a few other, you know, interested farmers in the area, actually pretty, pretty good group of farmers at that about what a farm apprenticeship is, you know, how do we train people that are ready to manage a larger farm or to go out and start their own farm? Um, you know, and I, and I've often, you know, I think one of the big problems we have with a lot of smaller farms or farms that are struggling is that, there's not enough attention given to actually teaching and training and preparing somebody for the, the realities of what farming is. I always, you know, joke like, I don't, I don't understand why we think it's so, you know, a, a, a welder needs four years of apprenticeship to weld a pipe together, but we think a farmer is ready to hit the world after a season. Um, I think the answer is that because welding well is really stinking hard. Um, but anyway, you know, it's, the apprenticeship model that exists in other areas, uh, you know, an electrician's apprenticeship, a, a pipe welder, a, a plumber, um, but really studying under experienced people and developing those skills, um, being really important to helping future farmers 
have success and that we continue to, to have young farmers think of agriculture as a, as a lucrative uh, career option. And luckily, there was a little bit of background already um, with, with uh, the grazers group who actually did come up with a, a certified uh, grass works or grass grazing program. So using that as a little bit of a model to say, what would it look like to have a, a certified program for a vegetable production, specifically vegetable production uh, apprenticeship? And so some of the conversations is, of course, you know, what kind of farms should they be on? Who's qualified to, to, to do teaching? What kind of experience do they need? We're not looking for people that are totally green, you know, that maybe they want to try a summer on an organic vegetable farm. Now, this is somebody who was who spent a year working in the trenches on a, a commercial farm and was dumb enough to want to come back for more and say, yeah, let's, let's think about this. Um, so what, what, what are the requisites for that? You know, for one thing would be multiple farms kind of having a curriculum of sorts or teaching the same things. What are the, the, the classroom components? Um, you know, what kind of actual classroom instruction would they be able to do during the season or um, in the winter? So it might be, you know, an online, you know, business finance course over the winter that you would, you know, be providing. Uh, of course, you know, craft farm visits and, and Moses Field Day, things like that that you would be sending uh, apprentices to. So what, what is that mix between, obviously, the most important thing, is with, which is the hands-on learning and you know, some of the real educational development that needs to happen as well. You know, how many years of this program, how do they progress uh, through it? You know, if you have multiple farms that are doing basically the same program, you could even potentially have a rotation so that these apprentices might be able to move around a little bit um, and kind of experience different farms, different management techniques and styles. Um, you know, and I think a big part of that is also thinking about farm succession, where there's a lot of farms where there's excellent farmers, they're getting older, maybe there's not a succession plan. How do you invest in somebody that you might actually want to start turning over management responsibility, possibly an equity stake or ownership of your farm as you kind of recede uh, into into retirement? So it was a really fascinating conversation we had. Um, we got a little bit of movement on it last last winter, and then obviously. This, this summer we're, uh, you know, all a little too nuts to be thinking about all those sort of things. But, uh, you know, as we wrap up the season and, uh, you know, the fog of delusion settles back on and, and 2017 is looking beautiful, um, we look forward to uh, picking some of those conversations back up this winter and, and, and really trying to make that happen. Great. I look forward to seeing what you guys come up with for that. Yeah, no, it's, it's going to be interesting to, to see. And John, with that, I'd like to turn to our lightning round here at the end of the show. So what's your favorite tool on the farm? Favorite tool on the farm? Probably my grain drill. What kind of grain drill do you have? It's uh, a 5300 uh, soybean special. It's international. Is this one of the bigger, newer drills that, that tend to be a little bit taller? Or is this a more of an antique model? I think it's like a 1980s, maybe early 90s. It's it's somewhere in between. <laughs> is there something in particular that you like about the grain drill that you have, or is it just a grain drill in general as your favorite tool? No, I think it's just a grain drill. I think my dream setup would be, yeah, something something I could put on the back and do no-till on, but we'll, we'll see. Maybe next year. <laughs> and what's your favorite crop to grow? 
obviously now we're going to go back to cover crops, but I think, um, honestly, I love growing cabbage. Really? That's an interesting selection. <laughs> Talk to me about growing cabbage. Well, I think it's, uh, I've, I've looked, trying to crunch them up, I don't know what the magic number is exactly, but we're, you know, what does, what do you, what does your return per hour need to be? And like, my arbitrary number is that you should be able to harvest $200 an hour. And cabbage is one that I can do pretty easily and enjoyably. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Uh, check your ego. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's something you could say to pretty much any 25 year old, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think it was, uh, you know, the formative years, you know, where you, you grasp the truth and you think you've grasped the whole truth. And, you know, sometimes you realize you're, you know, mostly full of crap. And, you know, I think that's uh, the beauty of growing older is hindsight. Yeah, at least there's something good about it, right? <laughs> yeah. John, thanks so much for being on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 93 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And then you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Middleton. That's M-I-D-D-L-E-T-O-N. You can support the show by going to farmer to farmer podcast slash donate. I want to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help whether you're supporting the show on a monthly basis through Patreon or showing us your love by leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Your support matters. Thank you. A reminder that you can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. And finally, I appreciate so much all of the guest suggestions I received through the suggestions form on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Please let me know who you would like to hear from. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>